then I have to accept that when Jesus speaks of being a man of peace, the Prince of Peace, he's representing the Father, and he's standing up against this idea that we have as humans that God's a man of war, therefore we're justified to be men of war. War and the Christian, today on In the Shadow of the Cross. Welcome back to In the Shadow of the Cross, everybody. I am Lauren Rosser, and I am here with my friends Jim Durkin. Hello. And Michael Harden. Hello, hello. And we thought it would be fun to jump into a a rather hefty topic today, but when do we not do that? I mean, when do we shy away and say, ah, that one's too hefty, let's let's stay away from that one? You know, there, there was a recent release of the movie Oppenheimer, and uh, we thought it would be cool to talk about war and the Christian. Um, what has historically been the stance towards war? What should our stance be now? You know, just kind of explore this topic a little bit. Now, I recently saw the movie Oppenheimer. Lily and I saw it for our anniversary. Uh, oh. Kind of, kind of a funny movie to see for your anniversary. But, uh, but we we both really enjoyed it. That was really well done. It really is uh, Christopher Nolan's masterpiece, and he's one of my favorite directors. So that's saying a lot for me. Um, but. Th- for me, it had particularly a huge impact because my grandmother was a missionary to Japan and was in Nagasaki. And I spent a summer in Nagasaki. Um, and I actually went to the Atomic Museum when I was there and went to uh, Peace Park and saw the remains, the devastation from the, the Catholic Church building, where there's just one corner of the building there, the twisted guard tower, and all these all these objects would say how far they were from the, uh, uh, from I, I want to say epicenter, that's earthquake, it's the uh, ground zero, how far they were from, uh, from ground zero. And I was um, 16 years old when I went through that museum, and I remember... It's getting pretty graphic, but I think we need to be real on on this topic. Uh, um, walking through and seeing pictures of school students in their uniform with literally their faces burned off. Yeah. Um, it was extremely disturbing. And I remember my now my grandfather fought in World War II. He was in in Europe. Um, he was part of Battle of the, Battle of the Bulge. Uh, was a master sergeant for uh, his. He ended up staying in. Stayed in as a master. Uh, sergeant also was in Korea. Was in uh, uh, he was stationed in missiles in Vietnam, so he was actually in that arena. Um, but he didn't go to Vietnam because he was stationed here. Um, my dad ta- told stories about uh, when I I, I I remember in high school my uh, social studies teacher told us to go home and ask our parents where they were when the Cuban Missile Crisis was going on. And my dad, it was particularly interesting because of my grandpa's job. Um, I asked my dad where he was. And my dad said, you know, he was at home in Virginia. And my grandpa told my dad said, before it was all over the news, said, I can't tell you what's happening. I can't tell you where I'm going. I can't tell you when I'll be back. But he he gave my dad a whole bunch of uh, very specific instructions to do should he hear certain things happening. And then it turned out my grandpa went off to Washington, D.C. 
It, 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 this is a topic that was is very much in my family involvement. When I went to that atomic museum, I remember I said to my grandmother, where as we were going to bed that night, I I said, you know, I wish we didn't drop the atomic bomb on Nagasaki. I, I don't think that was the right thing to do. And now you have to remember, she was at home during World War II when all the telegrams were coming home of people she knew dying. So this was a very real thing for her, and and she got pretty upset and said and said but do you know how many more american young men would have died if we hadn't done that and and so i backed down pretty quickly because i wasn't gonna fight grandma <laughs> but uh but you know so so it is a very heavy topic and it was really interesting watching oppenheimer and seeing the development on the bomb and then having seen the other side where actually having been on the soil and among the people that it impacted very directly. And so um, I think it, it's an interesting topic because now we, you know, it, war has gone beyond theory where now we can blow ourselves up several times over. So I just want to open this up for you guys' thoughts because I'm sure you have your own experiences and stuff and, and having uh, been on this journey longer than I have. And Jim, you've uh, you've also, like my grandpa, you've, you've been there, seen there, done that um, in the Marine Corps. Um, and you were in the country my grandpa didn't go to in Vietnam. And then, Michael, I know you've been around this bush a few times and, and were there as this stuff was developing. And so I, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts. Jim, you go first because you're the one with real-world experience of what, what war is like and what it can do to a person's soul and mind and body. And, um, and, and I think you've changed your position over the years. If that's if I've, if I've been reading you correctly, the last six months we're doing this. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I grew up in a, in a, uh, home, um, and a family that on both my father and mother's side, um, a long line of veterans, uh, they happened to all, as far back as, as I'm aware of, all were uh, in the Navy. My father was an officer in the Navy during uh, World War II. So I grew up hearing the stories. I, did, I didn't grow up in a family that you will do your duty, you know, so on and so forth. But nonetheless, the draft was active at the time. And... Um, you know, there's only one reason why a young man would have been drafted, and that was to have a rifle put in his hand and head off to Vietnam. And and um, and at any rate, uh, when it was pretty obvious that I was going to be drafted, uh, the, the draft at that time was by the lottery. Every young man had a lottery number. Mine was 19, and mm. uh, that that meant that within the next week or two, I was going to be called up, you know? Wow. So I decided, well, I'm going to make this my choice. And uh, uh, I won't go into why I decided on the Marine Corps, but anyhow. So when I got sent to Vietnam, I was one of the fortunate ones, if you will. Uh, I was a cook, and I got assigned to the commanding general's mess hall. So. Uh, I'm not what they call a combat veteran, but I'm still a veteran. I still went through all the training every other Marine went through. And so 
I, I saw the results of war, let's put it that way. Okay. And I saw it because um, there were places that when Marine, or well, any military branch, when they would take uh, an in-country R&R, uh, those were places that I would sometimes go to, and I would see people, and and I would hear the reports of somebody I knew that uh, got blown up or, or whatever, or shot or whatever. And you, you lived for that year, you lived with the constant stress of knowing kind of who are you not going to see tomorrow. Our, our base... Uh, like I say, was the commanding general's um, base and uh, hill. And we got hit by rocket fire pretty regularly. On a regular basis, we heard the uh, shells going overhead from the naval base or, or the Navy ships. And uh, so you, you live with knowing that on any given night you're going to be woken up in the middle of the night. You don't know if you're going to sleep that night or not, or if you're going to finish the night in the, in your bunker. That's an incredible amount of stress. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And the thing is, is coming back for many years, I... I did more than just hang up my uniform. I mean, I I hung it up, but I hung everything up in my mind. It's like, I don't want to have anything to do with with that. Hmm. A few years back, I joined the Marine Corps League, and I actually joined as a chaplain. And I ministered to a lot of people over the years. Uh, PTSD is... Uh, for a combat veteran is a lot more real than somebody that was in an auto accident or something like that. I'm, I'm not saying that's not PTSD. It is. But for a combat veteran who has experienced the uh, rigors of war, uh, my, own, my own brother, my older brother, uh, what he experienced, And one of the things we say in the Marine Corps uh, League or any of those leagues, really, is that the guy who tells all the stories and he's kind of laughing his way through his stories and so on and so forth is the guy who was never there. Uh. And because the guys that were there are not laughing as they're telling the stories, number one. Number two, they're probably not telling stories. They probably just honestly don't talk about it. Um, there's a saying, and it's true, war is hell. Oh. And uh, so my personal experience is, yes, Michael, what you said, I have changed my views. Um, we had back then, we had conscientious objectors. And I have to be honest with you that at the time, um, my mindset was that a conscientious objector was uh, a weak-kneed uh, imbecile that had no understanding of what nationalism was all about and what pride in your flag and your government was all about. And and he probably shouldn't even be wasting, you know, 
the air that he's breathing. Uh, <laughs> you know, today, um, I think the whole message of the cross, I think the whole message of, of our Lord uh, would not allow me to make the decisions that I, I made as a young man. Let's just put it that way. So anyhow, that's my story, as they say. Wow, that's that's pretty significant, Jim. Especially the 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 journey from having been over there um, for it being real. And I like what you shared as far as about um, you know the the ones laughing versus the ones who are quiet. Because I saw that with my grandpa. He would he would tell stories from World War II. Not all of them, but he would he would tell some. He would not talk about Korea at all. Mm-hmm. Would, would say mm-hmm. nothing about Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was told the only person he would talk to about was my great grandfather, his dad. That was the only person he would talk to about it. Makes uh, sense. And he did. I, I know that he did uh, afterwards uh, go through a phase where he was an alcoholic for a season. And my grandma finally said, look, if you don't stop drinking, I'm leaving. So, you know, he shaped up real quick when she kind of gave him the ultimatum. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, so it's uh, like you said, PTSD was obviously very real. I mean, he it, it, we saw the signs of it in my own grandpa. But, you know, is it, around me, you know, and around the family. He was just this sweet, loving man. You know, you'd never know otherwise other than just there were things he just would not talk about. He would just not go there. Um, but yeah, very, very interesting, Jim, and uh, interesting journey for you from uh, from having, like we said, having been there, and then uh, and then now having a, a different perspective on it. And Michael, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I take all of my cues regarding war from the Gospels. Uh, I did not say the Bible, and as you know, and we've discussed this for six months now. The interpretation of Scripture becomes key here. An understanding of the relationship between the Testaments is essential. And the hermeneutic that's given to us in Jesus' teaching and the doctrine of the Trinity and all of this, that's the frame. And if you believe the Bible is the Word of God given, dumped from heaven, and all you've got to do is figure out which verse goes with which verse, and, you know, if that's all you're trying to do, uh, well, good luck with that. I'm trying to think this thing through. I'm trying to ask, wh- where is this text going? What's it showing? What's it revealing? Where's the beating heart, you know, as it were, in the book? And in, in the beating heart in the book is the cross, the cross of Jesus, the cross of the pacifist Jesus, the cross of the Jesus who could have chosen holy war in Gethsemane. In fact, I would argue humanity was not saved on the cross. Humanity was saved in Gethsemane. That's where Jesus made the choice to give up his own life. From that point on, everything just plays out from that choice. And so as a, as a reader of Scripture, as someone informed by the cross, as someone informed by the teaching of Jesus, I am a pacifist. Now, what does that mean? What that means is in relation to the way I handle conflict, I would choose to de-escalate it. If my life was at stake and the only way to get out of the situation was to take the other person's life, I would let go and surrender because I trust the Father that I will be raised from the dead. Right? Death is not the last word. And the reason Christians are are really violent is because they're afraid of death. And so they dish it out. They're trying to keep it away, as it were, put, you know, and uh, we, we, what we end up doing is sacrificing generations of young adults 
uh, on a battlefield that look today, where's Vietnam? Vietnam's a thriving nation. We are trade partners with them. Heck, they're they're taking a whole bunch of the factories that are leaving China going to Vietnam, right? Right? Yeah. Right? What about Iraq? Well, it's still a mess, but, you know, nothing. It's like, what, what good did all of that do? You know, if people say, well, in World War II, you had Hitler and he was evil and this and that and the other and bada, 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 bada. And it's like, um, what they, people don't understand is the reason that that is valorized. Why? And listen, I just said Hitler is valorized. He's held up to a standard. He has become the standard of evil, right? And all other all other evil gets measured against Hitler. And so, what we, what what the world did was it turned Hitler into its scapegoat. Now, listen, I didn't say Hitler was innocent. Scapegoats don't have to be innocent. They just have to function. And so by claiming we were good, he was evil, we can rebuild Western civilization, and that's exactly what we did. But because the mechanism has broken down since then, because we found out about the Holocaust, because we became aware of, of our propensity to victimizing, you know, and we've seen this now lead into what Nietzsche prophesied back in the 19th century, lead into this whole culture of victimology. Everybody's a victim. It's like you said, and I think at the we were either at the beginning of the show or pre-recording that quote, you know, um, what can you say today to offend somebody? You know, everybody right. them, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But we're, we, we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, have an obligation to be peacemakers. We have an obligation to be pacifistic. We have an obligation to engage in nonviolent communication. We have an obligation to pray for those that persecute us, love those that hate us, not shoot them. Right. Yeah. I mean, it really hits home on this. Following Jesus is a hard road. It is not when, when we talk about it being a narrow road, it's 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 been so misinterpreted as it's because I said a prayer or, mm-hmm. you know, um, so that's the narrow road. Few people say this prayer. No, <laughs> it's because few people choose to give up their violence and, and, and Jesus said, take up your cross. In other words, I choose the cross. I choose death over yes. violence, which, yes. I mean, that goes back to, for me, what really hit home was when we talked about the Lord's prayer and mm-hmm. Michael, you brought out on that one that, uh, the Lord's, the, um, lead us not into temptation. Don't put us to the ultimate test. Correct. You know, that, that very test of like, don't let me be put in a situation where my option is violence or, or being the death dealer or something like that. And I, and that one really hit home for me because it's like, wow, you know, because that's the scenarios we even when people bring those up here in, you know, uh, when we get into talks about guns and violence and things like that, it's always, well, what do you do when the criminal comes? Well, the Lord's Prayer, <laughs> you know, please don't let me be put to the ultimate test. Don't don't let yeah. that test come my way, you know, yeah. but but no, this is this topic is is like we said, it's a heavy one because it's uh, for some people it might be the first time they're really hearing this or, or thinking about it. And it, one of the things that uh, is interesting, and Jim, you brought this out on a on a past podcast, how you don't see Jesus running around to soldiers and stuff saying, "Okay, guys, you gotta you gotta put down your your weapons, you gotta become pacifists." He certainly had a different way about going about it. Um, Jim, do you want to expand on that? Well, I'm not as um... Uh, 
I don't have as many years in uh, nonviolence uh, philosophy as Michael does, so I'm still new at this stuff. <laughs> no, but, but you know, thinking about you know, I I just think about that. You you've got a balance. You've got um, Paul here who's telling soldiers to basically to obey their commanders and, and whatever, you know, uh, he's what? not telling them, he's not telling them to get out of the army, but we also know that, that Christians in those days didn't join the army. They didn't go out there and well, I've, you know, I've got to join the Jewish resistance here, you know, um, that's that's really a hard one for 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 me. I'm I'm I'm. I'll be honest with you. I'm still learning, but I but I do stand by that statement that I don't see a single scripture where Jesus went around and told Roman soldiers. You know, um, it's maybe maybe I do have to kick that one over to Michael. So what what did a Roman soldier that converted? What did they do? Well, we we don't have. We don't have any evidence, you know, historical yeah. evidence. But but I suppose it would depend on their rank. Remember, a lot of soldiers were slaves. So it would depend on their rank, you know. Um, they, they, I would imagine they would have been punished um, because they would have – you cannot be an early Christian without being a pacifist. I mean, I've noted this before in podcasts. There's no doctrinal unity in the early church. There's already a split between Paul and the Johannine community from the Jerusalem church. That is, that is evident in the New Testament through and through. There's no unity of doctrine in the early church. There are certain places where you can find certain ways of thinking that are moving in the same direction, but there's no uniformity in doctrine. But there was one thing that every early Christian was, whether they were so-called orthodox or so-called heretic, they were pacifists. That's what marked out the early Christian, is their, their pacifistic character. And in fact, um, some people wanted to scour the early church fathers and go, well, you know, the early church fathers, they, um, they allowed for Christians to participate in the military. That is not true in terms of the entire known Christian world at that time, the Mediterranean. Um, it's only theoretically true if you're looking at certain fathers at certain places. And even then, it's the evidence is not um, unequivocal. So you really, you really have to reckon with the fact that one thing the early Christians were was they were pacifistic. Now, this does not mean and, but believe me, this does not mean that they um, lived it. They, they, I mean, I'll be straight up. You look, there's a wonderful book called Voting for God. looks at the oh, tens of thousands of synods and conferences and councils that were held in the first 500 years of the early church, you know, and you realize that's 4,000, that's like 10 a day, you know. I mean, and, and there were councils where the bishops were in fisticuffs on, you know, battling it out with doctrine, you know, and, Athanasius was known for throwing a punch or two. And, you know, so so it's, it's not everybody. Listen, every Christian is a theoretical pacifist. It was Stanley Harawas that said uh, when he was asked if he was a pacifist, he says, I'm a theoretical pacifist. I'm a pacifist in training, but I have a temper. 
mm-hmm. you know, and you have to, so the more you know yourself, the more you know about yourself, the more you know the triggers that, that could, could, could trigger you, um, you can deal with that. But in the early church, again, uh, they were talking about the relation to society which has to do with the military and and these kinds of things. Eventually, what would happen is as Christianity leaked its way into Roman high society over the first couple of hundred years, then as that sector, which is very state-oriented, becomes converted, they they are able to, to leverage that power into the Christian faith tradition and Constantine arises and bada boom, bada bing. Now Christians can fight anytime they want. And you have just war theory and you've got the Second Amendment and everything else protecting our God-given right to kill each other. Yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting because, you know, there's a lot of talk these days and there, there has been for a long time, but about getting back to the early church. You know, and it's like, well, do we mm-hmm. go to house church? Do we, you know, what do we do? And it's interesting because, Michael, you just highlighted the one thing that never comes up in the conversation that was consistent, like you said, among all the early believers, which was the commitment to nonviolence. And that that's the one thing I never hear come up in all those conversations about let's get back to the early church. I never hear, uh, you know, as, as a whole, when linked to that topic, I hear people talking about let's, you know, being nonviolent, but I don't hear it linked to the topic of let's be like the early Christians, let's be nonviolent. <laughs> you know, I, I don't hear that link. So I, I find that interesting. The other thing is this solves something in my brain. If I was listening to this, uh, let's say, I don't know, uh, seven years ago. And uh, one of the challenges I always had was, okay, you would read about when people, when the Christians would be persecuted, you know, turning the other cheek, um, going away peacefully to their death or or whatever was happening. But then I would hear at the same time about, well, if, if you need to stand up for the cause of war and, and fight your, your enemy, then, you know, then you do that. And so it was like this distinction of like, okay, so right now the guy breaking in my house, I can shoot him. But if he comes in saying, I'm here to kill you because you're following Jesus, then I have to put down my gun and say, kill me, I'm a martyr. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but that's exactly the arguments that I get because it's like, so wait a minute. So why was Peter peaceful, you know, or these apostles, you know, Paul and stuff when they would be taken away? But, you know, but at the same time, if with this just war theory and self-defense and all that, so it just mattered if they're coming to persecute. And if, but if they're not there to persecute, then you could fight and you could kill them because, oh, well, you're just here to rob something. So I, I can shoot you, but, or, you know, but, it, but, oh, you're here over religious reasons. But when you talk about that, Michael, about the commitment to nonviolence, that actually just com- clears the table for me where it's like, no, it's just nonviolence all the time. It's a lifestyle. It's not, it's not distinguishing whether the name of Jesus is called out or whether, whether it's over protecting my domain or my country or something like that. I um, two observations. One, I want to pick up on a comment that that Jim made earlier. But first, it's important to know that weak faith will always find justifications for violence. It takes strong faith to keep one's anger and strength in check. It takes tremendous courage to trust the Father. Okay, it's 
it's the weak person that has to have a theology that justifies their violence. And Jim noted this a little bit earlier. And I think this is the importance about the weakness of the cross. It's perceived as weak. And yet Paul will say it is the power of God. Mm-hmm. When you look at pacifism and pacifists as weak, well, the pacifist depends upon the state, you know, to keep your freedoms. It's like the Mennonites did, you know, for sure. I mean, that's part of the Anabaptist problem. And they they literally, they, they locked themselves inside a jail cell in 1527 in their confession of faith from Schleitheim, which denied their use of the sword. And on the other hand, in Article 6, gave the right of the sword to the state. They wouldn't use it. The state could use it, but they wouldn't use it. Okay. They screwed themselves ever since. No, real, real authentic followers of Jesus are distinguished by the weakness of the cross they exhibit in their life. Not the power of the resurrection, so to speak, but the weakness of the cross. That's why Paul says, I I, I want to... Um, attain to this resurrection through my sufferings. I need to learn this weakness. I need to learn what it's like to forgive the boat captain that, you know, double charged me. I'd like to know the weakness of, of, of loving the, the obnoxious uh, merchant, you know, whatever. I, that, that's Paul in his daily life, man. You know, learning to suffer, to bear it with joy and gratitude, knowing that God brings strength out of weakness. God's power is manifested in weakness, just like his love is manifested right in the middle of our hate. Wow. I think it's important to note that um, something you said, Michael, and and I totally agree with it. The the, uh, church uh, in, in the first century or even even probably the first uh, two and a half to three centuries um, was nonviolent, was pacifistic. Um, but that wasn't until after the cross. Correct. Those, those disciples and even the brothers of Jesus, uh, those people that followed kind of afar off the crowd, if you will, they weren't buying into into Jesus's message. They, nope. they wanted the Messiah that was going to organize the resistance. And um, I, I think that's probably human nature. I think to uh, what you're saying, Lauren, is... is true in many instances and and maybe in in most instances that uh you know if 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 state is coming to persecute me uh you know arrest me whatever uh because i'm a christian uh somehow i can muster up enough faith to let them do that but if uh, some bad man is busting down my front door and ready to do harm, well, the Glock sitting next to my bedside is uh, going to go into full action, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and it's like, 
But what about the scripture that says they took joyfully the spoiling of their goods? You know, of their goods. That's their household stuff, you know. Rome was coming in and taking their household stuff, too. Actually, uh, I've heard it said, I haven't researched it, but I've heard it said that houses and lands were actually being confiscated if you became a Christian and and whatever. And it's yeah. human nature. Um, we can sometimes, and I find myself kind of in this place, uh, like I say, this, this, all of this is fairly new to me. And I, I realize that even though I, I said earlier, I wasn't a combat veteran, uh, but I was a veteran, but I find that I'm, I am a man of war, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what I mean by that is not the uniform that I put on 40, 50 years ago. I'm talking about my heart condition towards anything or anyone that I consider to be on an opposite side of me. And I'm, I'm ready to go to war with them. It may simply be a war of words, but I'm ready to go to war. And, you know, <laughs> I, I, I wonder if it's possible. I'll just throw this out there. I wonder if it's possible that the last enemy that we as Christians are willing to let go of as far as needing to fight them is Christians that hold to other doctrines or worship practices or whatever than than we do. They haven't come to the persuasions that we've come to. And isn't that the spirit of denominationalism, basically? That, uh, well, you don't believe the way I do. You don't worship the way I do. So I'm going to go over and start my own denomination over here of people that believe this. And uh, I, I, I find that it's it with me, it's... It's so easy to get in caught into these conversations with people. Yeah, those people. Yeah, man, I'll tell you what. I tell, I tell you what. I wish God would just shut their churches down. I wish they'd just, you know, stop the mouth of the lions, whatever, you know. It's like, yeah, they're ruining this whole thing. And it's like, anyhow, it's just, uh, if we, if we're going to take the attitude of, Nonviolence. If we're going to take the attitude of loving our enemy, then we've got to be willing to let it be every enemy, even the ones we perceive as an enemy that maybe isn't, you know, but we perceive it that way. That's really good, Jim, because uh, I had an interesting experience uh, just recently where um, it, Michael had made the comment before that uh, Christians tend to be better than their theology. And, uh, and I, I, this experience I had, I, I really saw that in the sense that, um, first of all, it's like, yeah, it's, it's easy to, you know, it, we can, we can talk nonviolence and then even, uh, scapegoat people who are violent, you know, so you could be still holding, 
to the same spirit. Well, I mean, we see that even with the left, you know, a lot of times, you know, it's like we're, we're on the better path for justice. And then here's all the scapegoats that are on the other opposite political view or whatever. Um, it was interesting because I, I saw, had to have some people come over and visit. And um, to be honest, I was c- kind of nervous about them coming over because on Facebook, on social media, we were not getting along, you know, um, and uh, it was frankly pretty heated. And I was like, man, this is, you know, th- this could be a rough weekend. Anyway, they came over, had such a servant's heart and just really helped us out around the house and stuff. Ended up having a wonderful time. We don't agree on almost anything politically, <laughs> you know, and uh, and yet had this really good time because I saw who they are in Christ, not who they are politically. But what I saw is, first of all, what I saw was how social media does such a job of, of kind of bringing out the worst in us. And it highlights not, not the worst in everybody, but it's like we turn people into caricatures. You know, it's like, you'll see the political battles and stuff. And it's like, oh, the right believes this. And so they throw their grenades at the right and the right goes, the left believes it. And and then, you know, people identify with their side. So they kind of take their side. And it's like, but then when you talk to them in person, it's like you discover they're not that caricature. You know, that, that's that's not who they are. Now, now, there are those who fit that bill, but not not the majority. And uh, and so first of all, I saw that, that we we actually had unity among us. And it was actually a very beautiful thing. Prayed together, had a wonderful time, um, even grew in Christ. And it was so funny because I was all praying God would change them and God changed me. Um, so, you know, he tends to do that. <laughs> um, but uh, but it, it was very interesting um, how God did that. Um but also the the thing is that when we're talking about the the nonviolence as well, um, it's interesting because we talked about before how we are like the God that we serve. You know, so if we have a God of love, we're loving people. If we have an angry God, we're angry people. The whole thing of nonviolence, I just want to highlight this because it's not just about we're trying to adopt a philosophy of nonviolence. It's that we believe that what Jesus revealed to us is that God is not violent. Mm -hmm. So it's not that I'm adopting a philosophy. It's that we we're to become like him. And so if we, we know he is love. So we're to be love. We know he's forgiving. So we're to be forgiving. Well, we know from what Jesus showed us that he's not violent. So that's the reason for the nonviolence is we're, that's why, you know, Jesus even said that those who uh, the peacemakers will be called what the sons of God. Why? Because they're just like their father. It's it means they're. It's not just oh, you chose this path of peace. So here's a little medal, you know, like the the Tin Man coming to you know <laughs> the the wizard. You you were a peacemaker. Here's a little reward for you. It's no, you're you actually look like your father because your father, our father, is a peacemaker. Um, so I was wondering if um, Michael, would you expand on because I, I would just be preaching what you, what I learned from you in the Jesus driven life and stuff about, um, how the cross is revealing our nonviolent father. Well, the, the, the cross reveals the nonviolent father with a couple of presuppositions. First, that Jesus in his life and character chose to imitate the one that he called father. What we are seeing <clears throat> on the cross is not a sacrifice to appease an angry God. That's religion. If you look at the cross, oh, Jesus died for my sins. And that's what you see in that theology is an angry God that needs to be propitiated. 
That's actually quite the opposite of where the Apostle Paul goes in Romans 3, verses 23 to 26, where in fact Jesus is a propitiation. It's God propitiating us. Wow. Yes. And then, of course, uh, you have the text in the Gospel of John, no one can take my life from me, I lay it down of my own choice. Okay. Here is Jesus saying, I'm, I'm not, I'm, how can the Father forgive you for what you're doing? Because I'm telling the Father not to call this a sin. And so he becomes the demonstration of the way, the extent to which the Father would go to show us that we are so deeply loved. And furthermore, that the path, the way out, because that's what the cross of Jesus is called in Luke uh, in the transfiguration story in Luke, it says that he and Moses and Elijah spoke about his exodus, not his thanatos, not his death. Your translations read death. The Greek term is exodus, his way out. What was his way out? Well, the cross is his way out. This is, this is the only way out of the broken world that we exist in. It's the only way out. It's the only exit. Wow. Very different perspective from what I've what I was always told, you know, the, the sacrificial God. The other thing is um, a lot of people, you know, they'll take the stance, okay, yeah, Jesus was nonviolent and he died on the cross, but he's coming back. <laughs> you better watch out. What, what are your thoughts on that? Either one of you. Well, I have a song called Jesus is coming back and boy, is he pissed. And that's not the title that uses that. The title is why is Jesus always coming back pissed? And it asks the question, why is it that we live in this never-ending rhetoric of apocalypse? Why is Jesus always coming back pissed? I got apocalypse and pissed to rhyme, you see, in the same song. <laughs> um, Good job. That's because, again, that's because those people see that impulse in the New Testament toward love and grace in his ministry. They see that. But they have to make room for their other side of their Janus-faced God. And the only way they can do that is through time. Jesus at a certain time period was gracious, but at another time he's going to be pissed. Well, that's dysfunctional, first of mm -hmm. all. And it creates nothing more than codependent Christianity, where instead of being codependency, as you know, is horrid because you're a people pleaser. You're always trying to keep the conflict down and ameliorate the problems, and you're right. And, and, and that's what Christians are in relation to their Janus-faced God. They don't know the Father because they only have a two-faced God because they've split the, either the Trinity into its attributes or into its persons or the, into time or history or whatever. It's always split. And so when you see the Son, in their view, you don't really see the Father. The Father and the Son are a little different, you know? That's why in their atonement theory, the Father's the bad cop, comes and threatens you with hell. Jesus comes in and says, listen, just accept me as your Savior, and we'll, 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 everything will be all right, you know? It's a good cop. Yeah. So this is Christianity. It is not following Jesus. It's just Christianity. It's just a religion. It's, a, it's another form of idolatry in the world today. Christianity is probably the most significant form of idolatry in the world today. Wow. Yeah. I, I was thinking that the, 
the second coming, it sounds like it's scripted by Kathleen Kennedy, of uh, who's pretty much running Disney Channel, where every every story she takes, the young man, like Luke Skywalker, is vigorous and young and, and optimistic. And then when they're old, they're disgruntled and angry. And <laughs> so the separation of time, just like you said, now they're now they're old. It's been a while. So they're coming. So so Jesus, it's been a while. You know, Kathleen Kennedy's script. He's coming back angry now. He's yeah. no longer the good guy you knew before. He's a grumpy, yeah. old, he's a grumpy old man. Exactly. Yes. Yes. He, no. he tried the peace thing, and that doesn't work. That's so now exactly. We've, got to, we've now we've got to return back to what does work. You know? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and Jim, it's funny because when you say that, you actually raise a, a huge philosophical point that it's like: so was peace an experiment? Was God, you know, the the, the Almighty God, you know, that He was just trying a peace experiment for a season? And then went okay. We work it, that. Yeah, it, well, it didn't work. Let's let's go. Well, to I had the, uh, I, I had two thoughts when we when we began. One I'll, I'll get to in a minute. But um, Warren, you said something, and and I was thinking about this earlier. You said the narrow way. Okay. Yeah. Now we know that scripture. There's a uh, you know the narrow way and there's a few that find it and the broad way and many go thereof and are destroyed and, and whatever. And we've always in, in, in your typical evangelical mindset, that's all about getting saved. You know, uh, there's a very few people when you consider the billions of people on the planet or the billions that have ever lived, there's only a few people that are going to, you know, get saved and the rest of them to hell with them. And, you know, what I wanted to say is that when you begin to allow the real Jesus, and I'm going to say it that way, to convert you, you start reading scripture in a whole different way. It takes on a whole different meaning, and and it blasts you out of that westernized evangelical way of interpreting scripture. And you look at you look at things, and you say, "It's not saying that at all." <laughs> you know, so that's that's the first thing. First, uh, I have to pause thing, real quick, Jim. Go ahead. And say, yeah, go ahead. For people who couldn't see it, Michael just went very charismatic while you were speaking, and he he would have been shouting hallelujah over there if uh, if if he could. So uh, I, I just wanted our our listeners to know that. So go ahead, Jim. <laughs> yeah, he actually agreed with something I said. Finally, you're <laughs> <No. laughs> terrible. <laughs> The the second thing and and I'm not going to pray for you anymore. (laughs) I think this is important. (laughs) I think this is important. The other thing you said, Lauren, is that you know we want to get back to the first century church or the the church of you know of Acts or or whatever. And Michael has said on several podcasts that that only. That was an experiment. That only lasted for a few months, a a very short period of time. But the mindset, the philosophy of being a Jesus follower, okay, I wish that were the thing that people were committed to getting back to. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? 
And, and many people want to start with, okay, we're no longer under the new covenant. Now we're under the new, uh, and we're no longer under the old covenant, rather. Now we're under the new covenant. Or we need to be New Testament people. And I, I would suggest this. I would suggest that that doesn't go far enough. I would suggest that we become Jesus followers. And what I mean by that is if you divide the Bible by New Testament, Old Testament, New Covenant, Old Covenant, etc., etc., you you have God who is one way and will probably be that way again someday. That's what Michael was talking about. And then in the middle of that, that God has a drinking problem, so it's it's terrible. <laughs> in the middle of that, yeah, the cup he drinks from the cup of wrath, right? Yeah, that's right. You have Jesus who is, you know, he's different, and he kind of gives us this little reprieve here called peace or whatever. But in reality, you we have to start with the fact that Jesus came to represent who the Father really is. He came to make the Father known to us. Yes. And we have to accept that if if he came to make the Father known, if he is the exact representation of the Father, if he said nothing unless the Father said it, he did nothing unless the Father did it, then it means that Everything that we have believed and taught about the Father that you can't see Jesus doing or saying is a wrong representation, no matter how godly that person was. And I want to read a, a portion of scripture here that goes directly against what uh, we're talking about here. It's in Exodus 15. It says, Moses and the children of Israel sang a song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he threw into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and to become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Yeah. As long as I hold into my heart or my belief structure that God is a man of war, then I justify myself being a man of war. Absolutely. When Jesus comes onto the scene and says, I want you to know the Father, because no one has ever seen him except the one who is in the bosom of the Father and the one he will reveal him to. Then I have to accept that when Jesus speaks of being a man of peace, the Prince of Peace, he's representing the Father and he's standing up against this idea that we have as humans that God's a man of war, therefore we're justified to be men of war. Yeah. As a matter of fact, God endorses war. He endorses supremacy on every level. 
And Jesus comes into the scene and says, no, no. He endorses peace. That's who he is. And that message, Michael's laughing again. I'm laughing. I'm going to start speaking in tongues in a minute. This is so good. (laughs) That message will get you kicked out of most churches. Oh, yeah. You That's know? the gospel, though. What and what did it get Jesus kicked out of the synagogues? Yes, absolutely. But it is the gospel. That's right. And and it's a hard <laughs> road to hoe, if you yeah, will. It is. To let me give you another scripture: to deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow Him. Okay. So our interpretation even of Scripture changes by the message of being a Jesus follower. We start looking at Scripture, and we start saying, this isn't talking about getting saved. You know, this isn't talking about, you know, pick up your cross and follow him. You know, that means get your King James Bible and go to church on Sunday instead of out to the lake fishing, you know? You have to deny yourself, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's it's talking about something on a whole different level. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because um, when you talked about, it's not talking about getting saved, it's like, well, not in the evangelical sense, but it actually yes. is talking about getting saved, getting saved from our violence and our warmongering and, and all that mentality that is anti-Christ, that is not in line with who Jesus is. Is it any wonder, you know, we, you, when you read so much of the New Testament, it's contrasting Jesus from Moses. And we just turned that into, oh, it's just about the law. It's like, no, that scripture you just read about, about Moses there, the, the song that was sung. Um, from the Old Testament, Jim, it's like there's a reason why Jesus is being contrasted with Moses because Moses said God is a God of war and Jesus is going, no, he's not. And look at me. That's a, a very, very important um, thing you've done here, Lauren. You've opened up a, a new way for us to have a conversation. Maybe we can continue next week with it. But what you just did was to... We need to talk about that because, remember, Jewish Christianity is going to um, bring try to fit Jesus into Moses, whereas the Pauline, Johannine traditions in particular, and, and the Luke and, and Luke and Luke Acts, they all are looking at another relationship between Jesus and Moses. You know, they're not trying to fit Jesus into this Judaism. Right. So the Jesus-Moses parallelism is an important, and it's a hermeneutic. It's an actual hermeneutic. Yeah, that, that would be a great one to pick up next week, especially since now we're out of time. So uh, let's <laughs> let's look at doing that for next week. Um, so once again, uh, we talked, Michael, a lot about your, uh, I, I mentioned your book a few times. Um, where can people find that? Uh, my books are listed on Amazon. My videos are on, and podcasts are all over YouTube and and, and Jim, your book has a lot to do with peacemaking, actually, uh, because you talk a lot about um, loving our brothers and sisters who are different, different backgrounds and so forth. Uh, where can people find your book? And what's it called? 
uh, it's Dying of Thirst on the Bank of the River. It's on Amazon. I'd also, uh, I'd also like to recommend Michael's book, The Jesus Driven Life. And not just because he's here, but it... Uh, have, you, have you been able to read it? Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I had, I had to have a dictionary uh, <laughs> to look up every other word, but uh, well, exactly I got through what it. My father, said. my father said, Mike, it's hard to read your stuff. I have to have a dictionary. <laughs> and uh, Brian Zahn's book, mm -hmm. um, uh, Farewell to Mars. Yeah. Uh if, if, if you're interested in what we're talking about today, and it sounds like next week, um, there's a number of things, a number of books that uh, uh, would help you to understand it and, and to understand uh, that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Amen and amen. Amen. All right, guys. We'll talk to you all next week.